0: Listener, in a previous episode, we covered a story which was instrumental in expanding and formalizing anti-hate crime legislation at a federal level in the United States. This change in the law just over 10 years ago was a long time coming for those who campaigned hard for minority groups to be legally protected against racism, homophobia, and transphobia. That piece of legislation is named after two people who were victims of vicious hate crimes, One was 23-year-old Matthew Shepard, a gay college student who was murdered by two men in Laramie, Wyoming, because of his sexual orientation. Like Matthew, James was a member of another minority which is significantly overrepresented in hate crime statistics. African Americans account for 28% of all hate crime victims, despite comprising of only 13% of the nation's population. According to NBC News... FBI found that despite the past three years seeing a decline in racially motivated crimes targeting African Americans, the number of reported hate crimes committed against them continues to exceed other hate crimes committed against other minorities. February 2020 marked a legislative watershed in the United States with the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act passing the House representatives in a bipartisan vote. This newer legislation is named in memory of 14-year-old Emmett Till, an African-American teen who was beaten and lynched in Monroe, Mississippi, in 1955. After allegedly whistling at a white woman in a grocery store, two men charged with Emmett's murder were acquitted by an all-white jury, despite the men later confessing to the crime. According to NBC News, the woman who originally accused Emmett admitted over 60 years later that her allegation was a lie, now a federal crime. The racially motivated act of lynching dates back to the Reconstruction era. The barbaric practice, which usually targeted former slaves, involved various methods of torture, including castration and mutilation, which often culminated in decapitation, but most commonly hanging. According to the Washington Post, between 1882 and 1968, at least 4,700 African Americans were reported lynched in all but four states with 99% of the perpetrators escaping punishment. But what you're about to hear didn't happen all that long ago. In fact, it occurred only four months before Matthew Shepard was murdered. Unfortunately for the victim in today's story, more extensive legislative protection came too late for what transpired. One unusually hot June in East Texas, but it proved to be a catalyst for much-needed reform when it comes to prosecuting hate crimes and for taking a small step towards attempting to address pervasive and entrenched racism. And as we know, we still have a long, long way to go. Now, let's get on with it.
1: Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Sunday morning 98, the 7th of June, in Jasper, Texas. After breakfast, people walked to work or to church to hear a pastor's message. On a road called Huff Creek, found it tough to speak, cause what they saw left them gasping and breathless. The broken body of Bird. And sure, you probably heard the story, it's rather gory, and if you follow the words, you can somewhat get a picture. But can you really picture being chained up into a pickup truck and drugged until the street ripped your arm off and decapitated you? And the ones who perpetrated this act for the simple fact that you were black, they had to hate you, mad at nature, because she made you beautiful and that's irrefutable. Like the fact that crack street pharmaceuticals is genocide to blacks. And although this attack on birds left the whole world disturbed, a few years back it was common and not unusual for other brothers to get done like that. And the irony of it all, y'all, was Bird was often heard saying that he would put Jasper, Texas on the map. But Jasper, Texas put him on the map, figuratively and literally. In spite of the insanity of this calamity, his family refused to respond bitterly. And considering the circumstances, what riddles me is, we rallied to save the killers, but who rallied to save Bird?
0: Part 1, The Jewel of the Forest James Bird Jr. was born on May 2, 1949, in Beaumont, eastern Texas, to his parents James Sr. and Stella, the third of eight children and only one of two boys. James grew up with his family in Jasper, near the Texas-Louisiana border, the Pine Belt town of 8,000 residents, where around 45% of the population are African American, lies 130 miles northeast of Houston and 250 miles from Dallas. As a child, James was reported to be a bright, cooperative, and capable student, and a joker with a happy-go-lucky and gregarious nature. James had a talent for sports and was popular with students and teachers alike. He attended Greater New Bethel Baptist Church with his family, where his father was a deacon and his mother a Sunday school teacher. James' graduating class of 1967 was the last segregated class at Jasper's Row High School. James' real love was music, which began in elementary school and fostered by his membership of school bands. A gifted musician, James mastered several instruments including the guitar, trumpet, and piano, in addition to developing a singing voice that was often in demand at family and social gatherings. Fan of the music of Al Green, as well as gospel, spirituals, and pop, two of James' favorites were I Believe I Can Fly, In the Prince classic, Purple Rain, James was insistent that he'd one day become a well-known entertainer, telling friends and family he was going to put Jasper on the map. In 1968, James met his future wife, Thelma. Two years later, the couple married and had three children, Renee, Ross, and Jamie. By this time, James had already done prison time for theft. He was in and out of correctional facilities over the next 25 years for forgery and parole violations, including a seven year sentence for theft in 1990. James and Thelma eventually divorced in 1993, and the children were raised by their mother in Lufkin, Texas. But despite his run ins with the law throughout his adult life, James was a proud and loving father. He certainly wasn't known as a violent person who went out of his way to hurt others. As well as being a caring family man, James was known as a considerate and reliable neighbor. His sister Mary later described her big brother to the Washington Post. He loved people. He was very people-oriented. He was the kind of person who never wanted to be alone. He would walk up to a group and join right in. He was very intelligent. People in the family told him he never used his full intellect. I would get upset with him at times. Like anybody else, he had his faults but the most harm he ever did was to his own self. He was never the kind to harm others. When James was released from prison in the summer of 1996, the 47-year-old returned to Jasper. The New York Times reported that James had struggled on and off with alcohol use since he was a teen, but he was determined to turn his life around. After his release, he started attending AA meetings. At one stage, James worked as a vacuum cleaner salesman, but ongoing seizures and chronic arthritis eventually saw him receiving disability checks. With public transport non-existent in Jasper, it wasn't uncommon for residents to walk to get around, nor was it unusual for residents to offer people rides if they saw them walking through town. James didn't own a car and couldn't drive due to his medical conditions, so he walked everywhere or hitched rides. Even if Jasper residents didn't know his name, they knew him on sight, and had no problem offering him a ride. It's just what people in Jasper did, and James always graciously accepted. Part 2 Straight Out of Hell On the afternoon of June 7, 1998, 49-year-old James attended a bridal shower for his niece at his parents' home in East Central Jasper. James enjoyed socializing with his extended family at the celebration, especially his baby granddaughter. Around 6 p.m., James left the gathering, walking to a friend's house on the other side of town, past Highway 96. The occasion was a 20th wedding anniversary party, where friends later saw James enjoying himself, laughing, singing, dancing with other guests and enjoying their company. By 1.30 a.m., James had consumed a large amount of alcohol and wanted to head home. He asked a friend for a ride, but the man hadn't driven to the party and was catching a ride with someone else. As James' friend left the party, he saw James walking down Bowie Street near Martin Luther King Drive in the direction of his apartment across town, which was about a mile away. James was stumbling along the side of the road due to his level of intoxication, but his friend figured James would make it home safely like he had on so many occasions before. The following morning, just before 9 a.m., a motorist driving along a heavily wooded and sparsely populated area of Huff Creek Road passed by an African-American church adjacent to a cemetery. The motorist saw something lying out the front of the building near the cemetery gate, I wasn't sure what it was. In a way, it resembled the body of a man, but then again, it didn't. At the same time, people walking to church also came upon the scene, recoiling in horror and turning their eyes away when confronted with a gruesome sight. The disfigured body of an African-American man lay on the ground, but the head, neck and right arm were missing. Law enforcement were summoned. When a local sheriff, Billy Rolls, arrived, he found the tattered remains of the dead man's pants and underwear gathered around his ankles. When police scoured the nearby area, what they found was even more appalling. A mile and a half up the road, a dried, brown-colored trail of something smeared on the ground led police to a severed upper portion of the man's body. His head, neck, and arm lay near a concrete culvert. For Sheriff Rolls, It was probably the most violent hit-and-run accident he'd ever seen, but he was confused by the brown trail on the road. At first, it looked like tire tracks, but not quite. Whatever it was, something had been dragged side to side along the road. Police followed the dark, rusty-colored trail another mile and a half down Huff Creek Road. Along the way, they found various items including keys, a torn shirt and undershirt, a watch, a pair of sneakers set of dentures and a wallet. The photo ID inside belonged to a Jasper resident, James Bird Jr., but it was impossible to compare the photo to the face of the man, to the dead man's head due to the nature of the injuries. If these were James' belongings. What were they doing 10 minutes away from his home? By now, police were 6 miles east of Jasper, where the smeared brown trail led to a dirt logging road in the woods. The end of the road opened to a clearing. Where police found an area of flattened and matted grass, hand-upturned earth, and a broken beer bottle, suggesting that a scuffle had occurred. Police discovered more items, including three cigarette butts, a can of tire sealant, a CD by the rock band KISS, a can of black spray paint, a pack of cigarettes, empty beer bottles, a wrench set, a baseball cap, and a button from the shirt found earlier along the road. A nut driver wrench inscribed with the name Barry and a Zippo cigarette lighter engraved with the words Possum and KKK had also been discarded on the ground. The two S's in Possum were lightning bolts, and the three K's formed a triangle. Police finally completed the grisly task of searching the route for evidence, spray-painting the spots where items were collected. They found human remains in a total of 81 locations, up to a mile away from where the man's body had been dumped out the front of the church. Following fingerprinting of the dead man, it was confirmed that the mutilated human remains were indeed those of James Bird Jr. By this time, Sheriff Rolls had also realized something. The dark rusty colored streaks on the road weren't tire rubber at all. They were blood stains. By that evening, rumors about the gruesome murder were swirling around Jasper. No information was available as to the victim's identity, A word had spread fast. The news jogged something in the memory of one Jasper resident who decided to pay a visit to the sheriff's office. Coincidentally, the man had known James for a few years, but didn't know whether the victim found torn apart by the side of the road was his friend or someone else. The man told law enforcement that as he drove down Martin Luther King Drive, Between 2.30 a.m. and 2.45 a.m. Sunday morning, he saw James walking along the road. He could tell his friend was heavily intoxicated from the way he was swaying and stumbling as he walked along. The man drove on, but not long arrived at his destination when he saw a pickup truck pass by, which he described as being primer gray in color. James was in the bed of the pickup, and three white men were riding up front in the cab. This information proved helpful for police. The description of the 1982 Ford pickup matched one owned by a local resident, Sean Barry. In addition to the wrench engraved with Barry, that was found at the crime scene. This provided the lead police needed to bring Sean to seek his assistance with their inquiries. 23-year-old Sean Barry was known to police. Raised by his grandparents after his mother left when he was just a toddler, Sean wasn't academically inclined, but he enjoyed attending school, where he enthusiastically participated in all manner of sports and established close friendships. However, when Sean was 15, he suffered a devastating loss. Even though he was still living with his grandparents, the only man he'd ever known as his father took his own life. The impact hit Sean hard. His grades went downhill. He started skipping school until he eventually dropped out of Jasper High in the ninth grade. The book Hate Crime by reporter Joyce King, who covered the bird case extensively, explains how Sean soon found a job stacking groceries so he can contribute financially to the household. Sean was well liked and maintained a steady mixed-race group of friends. In his spare time, he enjoyed bull riding at local rodeos and joyriding around Jasper with his brother Lewis. Sean continued to look for better paying jobs until he landed construction work, but unfortunately, he was easily led astray. In 1992, Sean served three months in prison boot camp over his involvement in a burglary with a friend named Bill, whom Sean had known since high school. Following his release on probation in January 1993, Sean started dating a local girl named Christy. The couple moved in with Christy's grandfather and soon after welcomed a baby boy. Despite a drunk driving conviction in 1996, and his tendency to pick fights with others rather than walk away, Sean largely managed to stay out of trouble with the law. He found a stable job as the manager of the Jasper Twin Cinema, but the relationship with Christie was volatile, and the couple often clashed. After one particularly explosive argument in early-mid 1998, Sean moved in with his friend, Bill, to an apartment complex opposite Walmart, the men having maintained contact since their release from prison five years earlier. Around May, another friend of Bill's named Russell Brewer also moved in, following his release from prison. Around 9 p.m. on the evening of June 7th, police stopped Sean and his pickup near the Jasper Twin Cinema parking lot over outstanding traffic violations. When officers searched the pickup, behind the front seat they found a set of tools matching the wrench found at the crime scene, along with an empty CD case for a kiss album. The pickup was confiscated. Sean was arrested and escorted to the sheriff's office, where investigators started peppering him with questions. It was some hours before Sean cooperated, the book Hate Crime details that by this stage, District Attorney Guy James Gray had been called in to help elicit information from Sean to move the investigation forward. Sean was shown items recovered from the crime scene, including his tools and the Zippo lighter. Finally, exhausted after hours of questioning, Sean blurted out, They wanted to fuck with a nigga and it got out of hand. In the first of what would be seven statements, some conflicting... Sean told police that around 12.45 a.m. the night before, he'd been driving around town in his pickup with his friends, Bill and Russell. The trio were drinking beer when they came upon an African-American man walking along Martin Luther King Drive and Highway 96. Sean recognized the man from around town but didn't know his name. Sean slowed the pickup to offer the man a ride and he accepted, climbing into the rear bed of the pickup. Sean said Bill then turned on him. Angrily exclaiming, That's some whore ass shit. You don't need to be picking up a fucking nick. Bill's outburst seemed to subside, and Sean turned the pickup onto State Highway 63, traveling eastwards. During the ride, Sean offered the African American man a beer and a cigarette. Sean told police that after a while, the group stopped at a convenience store east of Jasper, where Bill took over the driving. The man, who police now knew as James, sat in the front beside Bill. Sean claimed that Bill drove the pickup in an easterly direction to a wooded area outside Jasper, where they turned off the highway onto a logging road headed towards Huff Creek. Bill continued driving until the pickup came to a clearing in a darkened, wooded area, which was isolated, and no houses or streetlights nearby. Sean told police that upon reaching the clearing, Bill stopped the pickup, saying, I'm fixing to scare the shit out of this n- Sean claimed that Bill and Russell got out of the pickup and offered James a beer. Suddenly, according to Sean, his companions pulled James out of the pickup and onto the ground, punching, kicking, and stomping on him, till he stopped moving. Russell then spray-painted James' face with a can of black spray paint. Sean told police he was petrified and lost control of his bladder. He wanted nothing to do with what he'd witnessed, so he ran a short distance away. But a short time after, Bill and Russell returned along the path in the pickup, ordering Sean to get in. Sean said that as far as he was aware, Bill and Russell had left James unconscious in the clearing. When Sean asked Bill if they were leaving James in the middle of nowhere, Bill responded, We're starting the Turner Diaries early. Popular with far-right-wing extremists, The Turner Diaries is a novel about a race war, Known for its extreme racism and anti-Semitic content, Sean told police that when Bill turned the pickup back onto Huff Creek Road, he accelerated. Russell glanced out the rear window, saying, That fucker is bouncing all over the place. Sean claimed it was only at that stage that he realized his friends had tied James' ankles together with the logging chain, dragging him along the bumpy road behind the pickup. Sean told police he asked Bill to stop so he could get out. But Bill refused, threatening, You're just as guilty as we are. Besides, the same thing could happen to a new lover. In his police statement, Sean said that Bill beat James and dragged him along the road because he wanted to, quote, Teach him a lesson. Bill got out of the pickup and unchained James. By this time, James had been decapitated, which had happened when the pickup rounded a bend and struck a culvert. The men dumped James' mutilated remains in front of the church and took off, later returning to their apartment to sleep. Part 3 Three Robed Riders Sean Barry's statements confirmed law enforcement's worst fears. If what Sean had said was true, James had been brutally murdered based on nothing more than the color of his skin. The sheriff's office immediately contacted the FBI and Beaumont for assistance. Police and FBI agents searched the one bedroom apartment where Sean, Bill, and Russell lived. Investigators seized clothing and shoes belonging to the three men, as well as a large quantity of meat and beer, which had earlier been reported stolen by a local restaurant. But what concerned police more was the discovery of drawings and handwritten documents belonging to Bill. Scribbled on pieces of paper were a constitution, bylaws, a code of ethics, and a membership application for a group called the Texas Rebel Soldiers. The club appeared to be a branch of a hate group known as the Conference Knights of America, or CKA, reported to have associations with the Ku Klux Klan. Bill and Russell were both on parole at the time of the murder. They agreed to accompany police back to the station for questioning over the meat and beer found in the apartment. Possession of the stolen goods meant the men would be charged with a parole violation. Both denied any involvement in James' murder, but investigators knew Bill and Russell were more involved than they claimed. 23-year-old John William King, known as Bill, was born in Atlanta, Georgia. As a baby, Bill was adopted by Ronald and Jean King, who already had three children and lived in Picayune, Mississippi. When Bill was a toddler, the family moved to Jasper, Bill grew up in a loving and protective family environment and was reported to be an intelligent and capable student. He attended church with his family and made friends easily. Like his parents, Bill had both white and African-American friends. Being adopted and a good deal younger than his siblings, he was doted on by his parents, who were said to spoil him at times. But when Bill was 16 years old, his mother, Jean, with whom he'd been exceptionally close, passed away. According to the Boma Enterprise newspaper, Bill soon began engaging in antisocial behavior like stealing alcohol and cigarettes. No longer interested in school, Bill dropped out of Jasper High in the 10th grade. He found manual work, but his illegal activities were about to come to the attention of authorities. In May 1992, the 16-year-old was put on 10 years probation following an arrest for burglary. By this time, Bill had met Sean Barry. Unable to stay out of trouble, in September 1992, the pair were arrested for a second burglary and sentenced to three months at a prison boot camp. Both men were released in January 1993, While Sean managed to stay on the straight and narrow for the most part. Bill violated his parole in June 1995. This time, the 20-year-old was sent to the notorious Maximum Security Beto Unit to serve an eight-year sentence. It was during this stint in prison that Bill shared a cell with inmate Lawrence Brewer, known by his middle name of Russell. Cellmates became fast friends, aligning themselves with the CKA white supremacist group. Finding protection within the prison gang, Bill adopted the nickname Possum. Upon Bill's release in July 1997, 22-year-old moved back to Jasper, into a one-bedroom apartment. By now, Bill had accumulated a significant number of tattoos. Many of these were directly linked with the racist views and ideology he cultivated from his association with the CKA in prison. The tattoos included a pentagram behind one ear, a swastika. The SS of the Nazi Schutzstaffel recreated as lightning bolts. The words, Aryan pride. A woodpecker wearing a Ku Klux Klansman's uniform, making an obscene gesture. A crest with a Confederate flag and a burning cross. And the patch for the CKA. Bill liked to show off a smaller tattoo of an African-American man hanging by a noose, saying to people, See my little neighbor hanging from a tree? At first, Bill lived with his pregnant 18-year-old girlfriend, Kylie. Drifting from job to job, Bill's lack of responsibility and focus angered Kylie, who was working two jobs herself to prepare for the arrival of their baby. Kylie eventually had enough and moved out of the apartment in the spring of 1998. With Kylie gone and help needed to pay the rent, Bill's old friend Sean Barry moved in. In May 1998, Russell Brewer was released from prison and made his way to Jasper, also moving in with Bill and Sean. According to the Washington Post, by the following month, the men were facing eviction due to their frequent and raucous late-night booze-fueled parties. That attracted all manners of unsavory guests. You know... Creating true crime content sometimes has me searching in some terrifying corners of the internet, having to search through incel forums. Enough said, right? The type of places I do not necessarily want associated with my person. I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Let me tell you something, incognito mode does not hide your activity. doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why, even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast, ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers, so your ISP can't see the sites you visited. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background, and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV, so there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com obscura, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's e x slash obscura. Expressvpn.com obscura to learn more. <laughs> Listener. Creating true crime is my passion, but even I need the occasional break. So when I feel I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual game that anyone can play, but it's made for adults in mind. The game is a unique and exciting puzzle experience, unlike other puzzle games out there. Personally, I like to play it just before bed. With its bright colors and unique cartoon-like design, It makes for a good palate cleanser after working on the show. And the best part is, Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Again, that's Best Fiends think friends without the R. Best Fiends. 31-year-old Russell Brewer was raised in Sulphur Springs, Texas, 50 miles east of Dallas. One of five children in a strict military and religious family, Russell wasn't an outgoing child and kept to himself. He attended church with his family where he sang in the choir But as Russell entered adolescence, he began using drugs. His parents, Lawrence Sr. and Helen, kicked him out of his home, and Russell dropped out of high school. The book Hate Crime explains how Russell tried to turn things around at age 17 by moving back home and joining the National Guard. However, the lure of drugs was strong, and Russell soon relapsed, turning to theft to finance his habit. In late 1986, 19-year-old Russell was convicted and sentenced for a burglary charge. He was paroled in early 1988, but was again convicted in May 1989 for drug possession. Despite receiving a 15-year prison sentence, Russell was released on parole in May 1991. In 1993, 26-year-old Russell married a Hispanic woman who was the mother of his baby boy. But even the responsibilities of family life weren't enough to keep Russell out of trouble, and he returned to prison in 1994 after another parole violation. It was during this period of incarceration that Russell met Bill King, and the two men bonded over their affiliation with white supremacist ideology. Like Bill, Russell was a white supremacist who sported racist tattoos. During his time in prison, Russell joined the CKA, eventually holding the title of Exalted Cyclops. By the time 30-year-old Russell was released on parole in September 1997, his friend Bill had already returned to Jasper. Russell followed six months later, moving in with Bill and Sean Barry. The Washington Post reported that the night after James' body was found, Bill told police that the evening before, he and Russell picked up Sean following his shift at the Jasper Twin Cinema. While Bill didn't make a formal statement to police, he claimed that after he and Russell picked Sean up from work, Sean dropped Bill and Russell back at the apartment. According to Bill, Sean then headed off to meet James to finalize a drug deal. Bill told police the drug deal must have fallen through, claiming that Sean had an irate temper and must have killed James as a result. Bill confirmed that he owned the Zippo engraved with Possum and KKK, but stated that he lost the lighter prior to the murder, perhaps dropping it in the pickup. Bill was adamant he had nothing to do with the murder, as was Russell, who alleged that Sean had slit James' throat. Investigators didn't buy either man's story. Meanwhile, police continued to question Sean, who seemed to keep changing his story as more evidence was uncovered. Various parts of the pickup were found to have remnants of dirt, leaf debris, and even human flesh. Tire casts taken from the front of the church where James' body had been found, and from the clearing, matched the tires on the pickup. Sean initially denied any knowledge of the whereabouts of the logging chain used to drag James behind the pickup, but he eventually caved. He told police that Bill and Russell told him that around 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, they hid the 24-foot chain in a hole covered with plywood and debris behind the house of one of Bill's friends in McQueen Street. Unbeknownst to the friend himself, the book Hate Crime explains how police located the chain the following day. Even though Bill's friend confirmed that Bill and Russell had visited the previous afternoon, he didn't notice them disposing of anything at the property. On Monday morning, police had to break the devastating news to James' family. By now, the birds had heard the rumors like many other Jasper residents, but had no idea James had never made it home from their family celebration. James' eldest daughter, Renee, who described her father as a fighter, later told 60 Minutes about the moment she learned of her father's death i was baffled i couldn't understand it i didn't want to believe it i thought it was a mistaken identity or something i was in denial kind of had an out-of-body experience because being an oldest child you want to protect your parents under any circumstances i felt that i betrayed my dad because i couldn't help him when he was scared and isolated i just felt bad that i wasn't there and i couldn't protect him he had been ripped from my life At the time of the murder, Jameson Ross was stationed in Georgia, where he was serving in the military. Ross later told Sixty Minutes, I thought he'd been shot. That reaction is a reaction I don't want nobody to ever endure. You know, because in my shoes, I'm fighting for my country, and the country is out there killing my father. You know, that took a toll on me for a while, because I didn't really speak on it at all. I kept a bunch of stuff bottled up. In the 2008 documentary, Bird, directed by Ricky Jason, James' mother Stella spoke of her reaction to learning how her son had been brutally murdered. I'm very hurt, disappointed, to think they'd do anything that horrible to a person without a cause. I feel angry, but I don't feel any hate. I am angry at him, but I don't hate him. James' family understood that a vehicle had been involved, that he'd been dragged along the road but no further details were made available to the grieving family at that stage. The day after James Bonney was discovered, media from across the country descended on Jasper in force. The murder was described as a modern-day lynching, given it echoed the methods of torture inflicted upon African Americans in the not-too-distant past. As Russell and Bill were well-known white supremacists, law enforcement officials were unequivocal in investigating the murder as a hate crime. Early in the investigation, African-American members of Congress spoke out against the heinous nature of the murder, lobbying for it to be prosecuted as a hate crime. At the same time, members of both the white and African-American communities in Jasper rallied in support of James' family. Yellow ribbons were distributed around the town in the name of peace, also adorning telephone poles, mailboxes, and front porches. Then-President Bill Clinton spoke out against the murder, saying we must join together across racial lines to demonstrate that an act of evil like this is not what this country is all about i think we've all been touched by it and i can only imagine that virtually everyone who lives there is in agony at this moment analysis of forensic evidence was still underway James autopsy revealed that his pants and underwear had been pulled down before he was chained to the rear of the pickup Cuts and abrasions around his ankles were consistent with being bound together by a chain. James's body was covered in extensive injuries, including significant brush burn abrasions, consistent with being dragged by his ankles over a road surface. Both knees and parts of James's feet had been ground down. Some of his toes were missing, while others were fractured. Large lacerations on his legs gaped open, exposing the muscle underneath. Both of James' testicles were missing and gravel was found embedded in his scrotum. His buttocks had been ground down to the sacrum and lower spine, and almost all his interior ribs had been fractured. Red regions around the area where James' head, neck, and right arm had been ripped from his torso indicated that his heart was still pumping, that he was alive the moment he collided with the culvert. James' left cheek was ground down to the jawbone, but his brain and skull had remained intact throughout the ordeal with no evidence of lacerations, fractures, or bruises. As challenging as it was for the medical examiner to identify the cause of the extensive amount of trauma to James' body, the most shocking details were yet to come, but the public wouldn't learn more for some months. The nature of the wounds indicated that James was not only alive while he was being dragged, but conscious. The helpless man had attempted to relieve the unimaginable agony being inflicted upon him, by rolling his body from side to side as he was dragged behind the pickup. This explained the lack of brain and skull injuries, suggesting that James had tried to keep his head off the ground while being dragged. The cause of death was determined to be the moment where James' head, neck, and arm were ripped from his torso about halfway along the route, when he made impact with the culvert. Even though investigators formed the view that Bill King was the ringleader, The volume and weight of evidence gathered indicated that all three men were equally responsible. Unfortunately, when it came to laying charges, the murder couldn't be prosecuted as a hate crime, as first-degree felonies couldn't be prosecuted under the umbrella of Texas hate crime legislation at the time. Despite this setback, the prosecution decided to pursue the death penalty, but this meant they would need to have sufficient evidence to meet the threshold for capital murder charges. The DA's office argued that even though James had climbed into the pickup voluntarily, the moment the chain went around his ankles, he had been kidnapped. The felony charge stuck, automatically upgrading the offense to capital murder. Three days after James' body was discovered, Bill King, Russell Brewer, and Sean Barry were all charged and held without bail. The men would be tried separately. The case and the Burt family's overwhelming grief continued to make national headlines. As James' loved ones prepared themselves for his funeral, Reverend Jesse Jackson and Reverend Al Sharpton arrived in town to provide much-needed advocacy and support. A week after the murder, 200 mourners gathered in somber reflection at the Greater New Bethel Baptist Church to farewell James and seek spiritual solace in their shared anguish. According to the New York Times... Another 600 mourners gathered outside the stifling June heat. Inside the church, Reverend Jackson told the congregation, Brother Bird's innocent blood alone could very well be the blood that changes the course of our country, because no one has captured the nation's attention like this tragedy. This sentiment was poignantly captured in the bee poem you heard at the start of today's episode, featured in the documentary Bird, but whose author is unknown. By this stage of the investigation, the DA had offered Sean Barry a plea deal of a life sentence in exchange for testifying against Bill and Russell. Unlike his counterparts, Sean did not have a known history of expressing racist views or the same tattoos. To prosecutors, his initial accounts had seemed sincere and genuine. But when the DNA results came back revealing troubling inconsistencies in Sean's version of events, all deals were off the table. The FBI's DNA analysis of the killer's clothing, the pickup, and other items found at the crime scene revealed that the jeans and boots Sean had worn on the night of the murder were stained with James' blood. A shoe print found near a large bloodstain on the logging road had been left by a rugged Outback brand sandal. This was the same brand owned by Bill King, which he was seen wearing the night in question. The sandals were later seized by the police and, when tested, were found to be stained with James' blood as was a tennis shoe bearing Russell Brewer's initials. Three cigarette butts collected from the clearing and logging road also implicated all three men, as well as a beer bottle with traces of Russell's DNA. Pellett earlier told police that the cigarette butts must have simply fallen out of the pickup. Police discovered that in the hours following the murder, Sean had washed and vacuumed the pickup, as well as the 24-foot logging chain that had been tied around James' ankles. But this didn't eliminate all the evidence. Testing conducted on the pickup after it was confiscated revealed blood splatters underneath the body of the pickup, and on one of the tires matching James' DNA. While no DNA could be recovered from the logging chain following Sean's efforts to rinse it free of evidence, it matched a rust imprint on the bed of the pickup. This indicated a chain had been stored there, but later removed. Protesters from out of town who converged on Jasper following the murder included the KKK and the New Black Panthers. On June 27th, around 25 Klansmen held what was said to be a peaceful rally outside the Jasper County courthouse, denouncing the slaying. The New York Times reported that the Klansmen gave emotive and provocative speeches, but denied any Klan connection to the three killers. Around 50 African-American counter-demonstrators also showed up, carrying guns as a symbol that their community wouldn't tolerate violence. Even though the rally was largely uneventful, The New York Times reported that the Byrd family appealed for calm via the following statement. Let this horrendous violation of the sanctity of life not be a spark that ignites more hatred and retribution. Rather, let this be a wake-up call for America, for all Americans. Let it spark a cleansing fire of self-examination and reflection.
1: A detective came and knocked on the door. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
0: You know people are going to judge
1: you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me again in my whole life.
0: You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Part 4. Facts are facts. Bill King would face trial first. While he waited at the county jail, a request by the defense for a change of trial venue was denied. During this time, Bill wrote a letter to Russell Brewer, saying, Regardless of the outcome of this, we have made history. Death before dishonor. However, the correspondence was confiscated before it left the jail and would instead be used by the prosecution as evidence in Bill's upcoming trial. The Washington Post reported that Bill also wrote to a local newspaper claiming he was, quote, "...a victim of judicial conspiracy." On the first day of Bill's trial in January 1999, local and national media were out in force to cover the case which continued to grip the country. Media vans lined the street as reporters jostled to find the most ideal position to broadcast from outside the Jasper County courthouse. Inside court, Bill pled not guilty. The prosecution opened their case by alleging that Bill instigated the attack out of his desire to form a white supremacist group. There was a heavy focus on Bill's well-known hatred of African Americans. The prosecution asserted that his tattoos were both clear evidence of Bill's racist ideology and, and demonstrated his capacity for brutally torturing and killing an African-American man. Sheriff Rolls was the first witness to testify for the state, telling the court, I didn't even know the definition of a hate crime, but I knew somebody had been murdered because he was black. Once we saw the KKK emblem on the cigarette lighter, it was going through my mind. Somebody's dragging something. We started having some bad thoughts. Numerous other witnesses including an ex-inmate and former white supremacist, testified that Bill wrote letters filled with racist rhetoric that his tattoos were motivated by his white supremacist beliefs. Witnesses confirmed for the court that Bill was known as Possum that he owned the Zippo lighter found at the crime scene. An ex-girlfriend of Bill's testified that on the night of the murder, she had been at the apartment with the three men until around 1 a.m. When they left to go joyriding in Sean's pickup, the court heard that Sean was driving Russell was in the middle, and Bill on the other side. The prosecution argued that Bill's jailhouse letter to Russell suggested that Bill actively participate in the murder. The DA also cited another letter where Bill boasted about the murder, and referred to Sean as a snitch-ass traitor. An expert in gang dynamics testified that Bill's writing found in the apartment were an attempt to recruit members for a Jasper chapter of the CKA. The expert told the court that a key part of gaining publicity for the group was for Bill to do something shocking in public. This would establish the group's credibility and perhaps the endorsement of larger white supremacist organizations. The jury was shown the gruesome crime scene photos in folders. Before hearing from the medical examiner who conducted James' autopsy, the courtroom sat in silence, aghast as it heard that James was both alive and conscious when he was dragged behind the pickup. The medical examiner told the court that the dragging would have been extremely painful, and that before James died, he would have likely experienced the sensation of repeatedly hitting a very hot stove. The medical examiner added, He would have been very tired, very worn out, trying to keep the pain from being so severe. The prosecution closed by reiterating that James' murder was akin to a lynching, saying, Three robed riders came straight out of hell. Instead of a rope, they used a chain. And instead of horses, they had a pickup truck. The defense rejected the proposition that Bill's tattoos represented a desire to murder an African-American. Instead, they asserted that Bill acquired the tattoos in prison in order to protect himself from bullying by other prisoners and nothing more. Bill's lawyer suggested that he didn't develop his staunch racist ideology until he first went to prison in 1992. They argued that Bill's beliefs were reinforced during the subsequent periods of incarceration Causing changes in both his personality and worldview, Bill did not take the stand to testify. In closing arguments, the defense argued that while Bill was present during the murder, that there was no conclusive evidence of premeditation on his part. The defense didn't dispute that James had suffered an excruciating death, but they questioned whether he was kidnapped. They argued that while there was no doubt that James' ankles had been bound together, this represented the manner in which he died. As opposed to kidnapping, the defense didn't endorse Bill's racism, instead defending his right to be racist. Jurors retired to begin deliberating their three choices. They could find Bill not guilty, find him guilty of capital murder, or find him guilty of a lesser murder charge. After only two hours, the foreman, who was the only African-American on the jury, announced that Bill had been found guilty of capital murder. Both James' family and Bill's father, Ronald, sobbed, but Bill himself was unfazed. Outside court, James' sister Mary told waiting reporters, We've won, but we've lost because James is not here. Now we've just got to move on with our lives. James' son, Ross, was less forgiving, saying, All I know is that there's one down and two to go. But it wasn't over yet order for the death penalty to be imposed all 12 jurors had to be unanimous in their decision that bill represented an ongoing threat to the community life in prison without parole wasn't an option as this wasn't offered in texas the state psychiatrist contended that bill would indeed remain a threat to society citing his correspondence and tattoos which directly reflected an ideology of violence The defense psychiatrist told the court that Bill's racist views would ensure he remained isolated from the general prison population, therefore not representing a serious risk while incarcerated. There was no evidence that Bill had mental illness, which further reduced any threat he may pose to those around him. Unfortunately for the defense, the psychiatrist was forced to admit that Bill had shown no remorse at any stage. Bill's father, Ronald, pleaded with the jury to spare his son's life, but it was to no avail. On February 25th, the jury announced that Bill King was sentenced to death by lethal injection. As with the verdict, Bill was expressionless upon hearing his sentence, but as he was escorted from the courthouse, he swore at both reporters and the Bird family, releasing a statement via his attorneys protesting his innocence. With Bill's trial concluded and his fate sealed, for the time being anyway, Russell Brewer was the next to stand trial. In March 1999, the defense filed a request for Russell's trial to be heard outside Jasper, given the concern that the outcome of Bill's trial may affect the impartiality of the jury. The motion was denied a month later. However, a follow up request by the prosecution to move the trial was granted. If Russell was convicted, the last thing the prosecution wanted was for an appeal to be upheld on the basis that their client didn't receive a fair trial in Jasper. Proceedings would now be held in Brazos County Courthouse in Bryan, three hours' drive west. In August 1999, Russell's trial finally got underway. The court heard that by the time James was murdered, Russell had been an active white supremacist and CKA member for over three years. Prosecutors argued that it was Russell who drew Bill King into the world of white supremacy when the pair met in prison, and that Russell's established views were sufficient evidence of motive. Like Bill... Russell had also written letters in prison following the murder, bragging to a fellow inmate, "'I'm the goddamn hero of the day.'" Russell's correspondence while waiting trial belied his confidence in beating the charge. He compared his circumstances to that of O.J. Simpson, writing, "'What's the worst they can do? Pull prints off a 20-foot rusty-ass log chain? Look at O.J. He beat his case.'" Prosecutors argued that in addition to being the ringleader of the attack— Russell boasted about his involvement, referring to a section of his letter which read, Well, I did it, and I'm no longer a virgin. It was a rush, and I'm still licking my lips for more. The defense claimed this was a reference to performing oral sex and nothing more. The prosecution called around a dozen witnesses. The Washington Post reported that a prison inmate told the court that not only was Russell vocal about his hatred for African Americans... That he'd expressed regret about not concealing evidence more carefully. The state psychiatrist testified that Russell didn't appear to display any remorse for his actions. The prosecution presented forensic evidence rejecting Russell's claim that Sean Barry had slit Jane's throat. This had indeed been the case. It would have been indicated by different blood patterns on the road, at the crime scene, and on Sean's clothing and shoes. When the twenty-four-foot logging chain was unfurled before the jury, The visual impact of such a significant piece of evidence was palpable. The defense admitted that Russell was racist, but claimed this was irrelevant in the context of the murder. Russell took the stand in his defense. He told the court that when he met Bill in prison, the pair joined a white supremacist group for protection from other inmates. Not because he aligned himself with their ideology. Russell admitted that he and Bill picked up Sean from work on the night of the murder, and that the trio later went joyriding. Russell said that after the men picked up James, they drove around some more before pulling over. Russell told the court that he got out of the pickup and went with Bill and James to the rear, where James said, Let me smoke with you white boys. Russell testified that he kicked James once in the ribs and spray paint in his face, before Sean approached James from behind, slashing the unsuspecting man's throat. Russell claimed he and Bill were both so unsettled by Sean's actions that they returned to the cab of the pickup. Russell denied any involvement in chaining James to the pickup or instigating the dragging, instead claiming Sean was responsible. Russell told the court that Sean got in the driver's seat and reversed over James' body laying in the dirt before accelerating forward and driving off. Russell denied any knowledge of James being tied to the pickup prior to the vehicle driving some way down the road. Russell also denied writing the letters following the murder, which had been read to the court claiming they had been interfered with to incriminate him. He also turned his head away when asked to look at the graphic photographs of James' mutilated body. In closing, the prosecution reminded the jury that Russell's need for self-preservation overrode any compassion for anyone but himself. The defense argued that there was insufficient evidence to support a conviction, telling the jury, What you have been shown was that Russell was there, and has racist tendencies towards minority groups. The state can't prove what actually happened. Where is the proof of who did what, if anything? The prosecution has presented a case that plays on your emotions. Human nature says we want somebody to pay. On September 22, 1999, the jury retired to deliberate. In less than four hours, they returned with their verdict. The jury rejected Russell's account that Sean had cut James' throat, convicting Russell of capital murder. The only question now was whether Russell would receive the death penalty or life without parole for 40 years. The state psychiatrist testified that Russell posed a substantial risk to both the community and the prison population. The defense disputed this assessment, describing their client as meek and submissive, arguing that a prison sentence was more than appropriate to protect society. They claimed that Russell was in fact remorseful demonstrated during his testimony where he broke down in tears on the stand. Russell's parents made their pleas for their son's life to be spared. Alan Brewer blamed Russell's drug use as a catalyst for his downward spiral. Lawrence Sr. told the court he didn't raise his son to be a racist, and that prison forever changed him, saying, Russell was a follower, but he followed the wrong people. Jurors deliberated for much longer compared to the penalty phase for Bill King. While waiting the decision outside court, James' sister Mary told reporters, I'm angry at how he showed no mercy at anything for my brother. If he had just shown a little remorse, it would have been kind of different. When the jury returned, they announced that Russell would join Bill on death row. Sean Mary's trial began in November 1999. Outside court before proceedings commenced, James' sister Mary told reporters that Sean could have made a difference on the night James was murdered, saying, Now they want mercy shown to them. And I say to people, if you want mercy, you first show yourself to be merciful. No mercy was shown to James on that night. In the 2002 documentary, Two Towns of Jasper, directed by Whitney Dow and Marco Williams, James' other sister Stella called Sean the worst of the bunch with no heart because he was initially driving... The Deseret News reported that the prosecution alleged that Sean was just as complicit as Bill and Russell, given he drove for the majority of the evening, with the DA telling the court, Motive in this case is either one of two things. He lived with these Klansmen and developed their way of thinking, or he's a thrill-seeker who got caught up in the killing like he was in a pack of dogs. The defense said that Sean was entirely dissimilar compared to Bill and Russell, Sean didn't share his cohorts' racist views and had no racist tattoos indicating that he ascribed to an ideology of white supremacy. Bill and Russell threatened that if Sean turned them in, they would find him, that he would be going to prison anyway because he was present. Psychiatrists who appeared before the defense testified that Sean wasn't racist. When Sean took the stand in his defense, he told the court that he didn't know that Bill was racist, with a deep hatred for African Americans. Sean claimed that Russell and Bill were entirely responsible for the crime. He now testified that after the group stopped at the convenience store after picking up James, Sean continued driving with James seated in the cab of the pickup next to him. Bill and Russell rode in the bed of the pickup. As the pickup pulled away from the convenience store, Sean said Bill told him to take the logging road. After driving some distance, Bill knocked on the roof of the pickup indicating for Sean to stop. Sean told the court that Bill and Russell then attempted to pull James from the pickup, but he struggled and resisted. Sean told the jury that he wanted to intervene when Bill and Russell started beating James, who was on all fours on the ground, but that Sean was frozen to the spot in fear. The court heard that after Sean saw Russell kick James in the head, he jumped back in the cab of the pickup. He then heard the chain being dragged out of the bed of the rear. Sean testified that after a few moments... Bill got in the driver's seat and reversed over James. Bill and Russell then got out of the pickup to check the chain was secured around James before they drove off. After Bill turned the pickup onto Huff Creek Road, Sean said Russell looked out the rear window, commenting, That fucker's bouncing all over the place. Sean turned around and saw James being dragged behind the pickup. On November 18th, after deliberating for 10 hours, the jury found Sean guilty of capital murder. Unlike his counterparts, he was spared the death penalty, instead receiving a sentence of life imprisonment. Outside court following the verdict and sentencing, the DA told the waiting media about how he felt at the conclusion of the proceedings. The only reaction is pleased. They they stayed with the facts and were very pleased with it. There was a day and a time in this country when cops and jurors
1: ignored facts in racial cases and let other factors influence them and
0: today is about as positive a message as you can get that that time no longer exists facts are facts and they stayed with the facts part five stop the hate educate even in the depths of their grief the Bird family felt it important to promote awareness around taking a strong stance against racism and hate crimes. In 1999, James' sister, LaVonne, established the Bird Foundation for Racial Healing. The foundation is a nonprofit organization that aims to reduce the incidence of hate crimes through educational programs and cultural diversity training. That same year, the James Bird Jr. Memorial Park was also opened in Jasper. But despite the community-minded initiatives that the Bird family hoped to implement through the Foundation, they still had to deal with painful and unnecessary intrusions into their grief. When James' grave was targeted on several occasions by vandals and miscreants, his mother Stella not only had to undertake the distressing task of cleaning the gravesite, but eventually had to erect a fence around the plot to protect it from further damage. James' eldest daughter, Renee, pushed hard to implement anti-hate crime legislation at a national level. In September 1999, prior to Sean Berry's trial, Renee traveled to Washington, D.C. She met with then-President Bill Clinton, who was taking steps for amendments to be made to existing federal hate crime legislation. The bill failed to pass, but Renee was not deterred. Focusing on changing Texas law, she met with state politicians to lobby for meaningful change Unfortunately for the Byrd family, then-Texas Governor George W. Bush opposed the implementation of hate crime legislation at a state level. Bush stated that Texas didn't require more stringent laws, as he considered all crimes to be hate crimes. By this time, all three killers were at various stages of the appeals process. Bill King's application requesting a new trial was denied by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal in October 2000. The following year, Sean Berry's request for a new trial was also rejected, and his conviction upheld by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But the Byrd family, notably James' mother, Stah, persisted in their quest for hate crime legislation to be implemented in Texas. In May 2001, the new Texas governor, Rick Perry, passed the James Byrd Jr. Hate Crime Act. In the presence of James' family, anyone now convicted of a hate crime would face harsher penalties. It was a small win, but there was more to be done. Meanwhile, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal upheld Russell Brewer's capital murder conviction and death sentence. Russell chose not to appeal this decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, and instead awaited his execution date. By mid-2002, James' children, especially his son Ross, were outspoken in their opposition to Bill and Russell receiving the death penalty. Ross told reporters that while he supported capital punishment at the time of the trials, he now felt differently, saying... When I heard King had exhausted his appeals, I began thinking, how can this help me or solve my pain? And I realized it couldn't. Ross found renewed purpose by becoming involved with and campaigning for an organization called Murder Victims Families for Human Rights, which opposes capital punishment. Early the following year, Renee, Ross, and Jamie received an unexpected letter. Sean Berry sent the Bird Children a written apology. In the following month, Ross met with Sean in prison to hear what he had to say. Following his visit with Sean, Ross told the media, Something in me wanted to know. I told him that he should have helped. I also told him that the only person who really knows what happened is the three men who was there in God. I respect him for saying that he was sorry. It wasn't until four years later, in March 2007, that the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Jr. Act was introduced as federal bipartisan legislation in the U.S. Congress. Just over six weeks later, the bill passed the House of Representatives, but in an uphill battle for the Byrd family, ex-Texas Governor George W. Bush was now in power. This meant the bill was unlikely to gain sufficient support to allow it to pass. Bush had been open about his intention to veto the legislation in the event it passed the Senate, which it didn't. However, The tide began to turn when then-President Barack Obama came to office. As clear as former President Bush had been about opposing the proposed act, Obama was just as vocal in his support for the bill. In April 2009, the U.S. House of Representatives again debated amending the existing hate crime legislation, and again, the bill passed. It was introduced to the Senate and adopted as an amendment two months later. Finally, in October 2009, Just over 11 years after James' murder, the shepard Bird Act was passed by United States Congress. When then-President Obama signed the act into law, he told the media, After more than a decade of opposition and delay, we've passed inclusive hate crime legislation to help protect our citizens from violence based on what they look like, who they love, how they pray, or who they are. Russell was the first of the convicted killers to receive an execution date, despite the Bird family requesting that his sentence be commuted. The day before his execution in September 2011, 44-year-old Russell gave a final interview, in which he expressed no remorse. As with all death row inmates, Russell was entitled to a last meal. His order included two chicken fried steaks with gravy, hand-sliced onions, a triple patty bacon cheeseburger, a cheese omelet with ground beef, tomatoes, onions, bell peppers, and jalapenos, a bowl of fried okra with ketchup, a pound of barbecued meat, half a loaf of white bread, three fajitas, a meat lover's pizza, a pint of vanilla ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three root beers. And what would see a swift end to the almost 90-year tradition? When the food arrived, Russell refused to eat anything he'd ordered, prompting prison officials to abolish the practice. Following the execution, James' daughter Renee told reporters she would have been satisfied with the killer's sentences being commuted to life in prison. James' son Ross told Reuters, You can't fight murder with murder. Life in prison would have been fine. I know we can't hurt my daddy anymore. I wish the state would take in mind that this isn't what we want. Life goes on. I'm looking for happy times. Russell's execution didn't deter Bill King from continuing to fight his way through the appeals process. Despite his persistence... He was denied by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in both the U.S. District Court and New Orleans, as well as the U.S. Supreme Court. With all avenues of appeal finally exhausted, Bill's death warrant was signed in December 2018. By the time of his execution in April 2019, the 44-year-old's father, Ronald, had passed away, and his siblings had all severed ties with him. There would be no last-minute reprieve from the justice system either. Bill had no final words before receiving the lethal injection. Following the execution, James' sister, LeVon, told Fox News, It sends a message to the world that when you do something horrible like that, that you have to pay the high penalty. Compared to all James' suffering, the executed men got an easy way out. 45-year-old Sean Barry remains in protective custody in Texas and will be eligible for parole in June 2038. When he is 63 years old, he and his fiancee, Christy, married by proxy following sentencing. On the 20th anniversary of James' death, the Bird family participated in celebrations honoring James' life, including dedicating a bench outside the Jasper County Courthouse. Carved into the bench are the words, Be the change you want to see in the world. James' legacy also continues to live on through his children. In 2012, His youngest daughter, Jamie, became a police officer. She told the Beaumont Enterprise that despite the trauma inflicted on the family, she found purpose in the aftermath of her father's murder, saying, Justice was served for our dad. It made me want to do this work. If you'd like to support the valuable ongoing work of the Byrd Foundation for Racial Healing or murder victims' families for human rights by making a tax-deductible donation, please see the links in the show notes on your app or on our website. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning. Listener, you'll recall at the start of today's story, we spoke about the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which passed the U.S. House of Representatives in February 2020. Since the time of recording, we have been bitterly disappointed to learn that the act has been blocked in the Senate. Only less than four months later, Kentucky Senator Rand Paul has taken a clear stance in refusing to acknowledge the importance of passing this legislation at such a pivotal time in American history. I wish I could end our story today on a more optimistic note, but the reality is, now more than ever, that the struggle to help dismantle systemic racism in our country, even at a symbolic level, is not over by a long shot. When you
1: visit Arizona, time is measured in moments.